Hello, I'm Stan Stoniker coming at you from Emerald City, Hub Culture's online virtual city. Today, we're going to have a conversation with one of my favorite people on the entire planet. She's our executive really? editor of Hub Culture, Miss <laughs> Edie Lush. Edie is currently coming at us from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where she's just finished moderating panels and discussions with a bunch of other world leaders at the FII, the Future Investment Initiative from Saudi. Edie, my favorite person, how are you? Well, I'm delighted to hear that I'm your favorite person. Okay. I was wondering how many people you say that to, but I'm going to let that one go. I may have said on a couple of previous episodes, but everyone <laughs> is special. If you live in the present, you are definitely <laughs> the most important in the world person in the world to me right now. All right. How are you? Yeah, I am very well. I have to say that it was amazing to leave behind the Jan Febs in lock down London and get out of the country. It was really, really difficult to co to get out. I have taken so many COVID tests um, at every airport I went through. I almost wasn't able to get on the plane because, you know, for all the right reasons, um, it's really hard to travel. But maybe it's useful to hear why I did travel. Would that be a good place to start? Yeah, I want to hear why did you go to Saudi Arabia in the middle of a pandemic? So there were just 200 people on the ground in Saudi over the two days over YouTube, WeChat, the FII platform, Twitter, over something like two and a half million people tuned in at one point or another, I think peaking around 10,000 at one point all at the same time. So for all those people, there were just 200 people on the ground there. And I went because when I looked at the panels, the things that they wanted me to moderate, Richard Atiyah's group wanted me to moderate, I thought, wow, these are really important conversations in order to help the world recover. And if we are going to make the world build it back, it is only going to happen in partnership together. That is how we're going to restart the engine. And so everyone was incredibly respectful. There was not one hand shaken everyone had a mask on there was you know i it was quite hard to talk to people because you know when you're in a conference and you have to whisper but you're whispering from two meters apart it's pretty difficult so i wanted to be there because i wanted to be part of the team that tried to do something and tried to give the world some ideas of how to build back so that's so, why i went okay so <laughs> walk us through leaving london getting to saudi and the atmosphere of the, the moment with FII? So I had two COVID tests before I left, obviously negative. I was supposed to fly out on Tuesday and spend Wednesday just getting ready. Saturday, they called and said, everything's changing. Can you fly tomorrow? <laughs> so, okay, um, fly through Abu Dhabi. So I get to the airport in London, can't get on the plane. I have to have a special, you know, I have to be on a list to be able to get into Riyadh. So that took an hour, get on the plane, get to Abu Dhabi, my phone, I turn my phone on, it's going bananas. The first message is you can't fly from Abu Dhabi to Riyadh, you're going to have to take a taxi to Dubai. And then from Dubai, wait till we have the clearance, and then you can come over. At one point, I was wondering if I was going to be 
you know, in the back of a four by four with my bags, like holding onto my hat, zooming across the desert. But then it was okay. I went from Abu Dhabi to Riyadh. I then quarantined for a day, took another COVID test. And then it was the day before the event. So it was, it was pretty intense. I mean, I think what was really interesting was we're entering into this new world of hybrid. So we've gone from a year of being online, digital only, places where it is safe enough will start to move into this hybrid, some people in person, some people on a screen um, conference, which is actually much more inclusive. And there was a very cool extended reality studio that they had. And that was really fun. They could change the background of the studio and it curved around. So it actually looked like you were within this kind of very cool city or out on the desert or out at sea or in a classroom. So they worked hard. And then leaving, I decided because I was had to fly back through Jeddah, I would just stop, stop for a day and go to the beach. And I've kind of done that. <laughs> and it must feel so nice to be in warm weather after the kind of bleakness of the UK during, during the- Do you, do you even remember what that's like? I do. Yes. I am still a Londoner at heart very much. And, um, you know, I I feel like just in the conversation, you know, this kind of, you know, UK to Saudi Arabia, London to Riyadh comparison, it's so vivid in my mind because I've been to Riyadh at FII a couple of years ago, and I know some of what Riyadh is, is like. Tell me, what does Riyadh and Saudi feel like in the context of the pandemic. And then we'll get into the, the content from the event, which was also pretty astounding from what I understand. But how did it feel to be in Saudi now in a pandemic? You know, it felt safer than being in London. The British variant is not there. There certainly weren't, you know, the, the concern is that people have been spreading it from coming back from Dubai to the UK. That hasn't happened because People aren't traveling from, I don't think Saudi's a big sun-seeking holiday resort place. So it, there was more, I mean, it's very quiet. The hotel was usually buzzing. You can't, you know, walk down the main lobby without running into somebody or at least seeing somebody that's, you know, interesting or famous or something. It was dead quiet. And we couldn't leave the compound. So I didn't, I didn't go out of, of, the, of the hotel complex at all. But the news coming from Saudi was extraordinary. So there was an amazing conversation between the crown prince and Matteo Renzi, the former Italian prime minister, who actually had been the mayor of Florence at the beginning of his political career. And the theme of the whole conference was the neo-Renaissance. And Florence was obviously the heart and the birthplace of the the first Renaissance. And there was a, a very interesting discussion about the role of cities and the role of cities in helping rebuild after the pandemic. And the crown prince had some extraordinary goals for Riyadh. He is vowing to make Riyadh one of the largest city economies, the ten, one of the 10 largest city economies in the world by 2030. So that means increasing, it means doubling the population of Riyadh within 10 years. That's astounding. <laughs> so he, he said, you know, you think that sounds astounding, but actually we've done it 10 times already in the last 60 years. 
So they've already got a park the size of Central Park. They're building more parks. They're ripping up roads, putting in rail transport. None of this, which of which I saw, by the way, so I cannot <laughs> confirm or deny that it's that it's happening. But I did speak to people about the pro the projects and their ambition. The other huge focus is, of course, Neom, which also interesting, you know, is on this virgin area by the Red Sea. But in fact, something like ninety percent of it is going to be a national park, and only ten percent of it is going to be this future city. Uh, I, I ended up meeting the guy who is investing on behalf of Neom. So he's investing in the electrification of Neom, investing in how they're going to be using only digital payments, investing in the vertical farms that are going to feed the city. So there was a, a lot about, about bringing Saudi Arabia, continuing to modernize, which is amazing. I mean, I will say that, you know, you, you then leave the kind of hallowed hall of FII and come to a city like Jeddah. And I mean, I am the only woman here who does not have her head covered and I would say probably 90% are, if not in full burqa, you know, they're really, really covered. So there's a long way to go. There has been this movement by Saudi Arabia to begin to open up and to begin to think about what the future looks like. Would you say that this is obviously development with Islamic characteristics, but beyond that, how do you see this attempt to grow so quickly and to push Saudi Arabia into the future, um, affecting the culture of the place. It's a very different culture than London. And I'm curious as to like with Neom, do you see it, do they see it being an international city the way that like Dubai is, or is it something that would really be built more for, you could say an Islamic audience? Certainly Riyadh, they want to attract the world's biggest companies. and. There was a, a story in the FT, which Renzi and the Crown Prince discussed, which was about, well, the, the rumor is that Saudi Arabia is trying to attract the biggest technology companies to make their headquarters for the Middle East in Riyadh. And he wouldn't speak about that, but he did speak about a lot of the other companies that have been encouraged to make their headquarters here. Um, and they showed some some pictures of of companies. You know, some of them are ones that are fairly big in the Middle East that I wouldn't consider an enormous, I don't know, earth shattering company. Tim Hortons, nothing wrong with Tim Hortons, right? But I wouldn't think that. Oh wow, you know, Tim Hortons <laughs> capital of the Middle East is in Riyadh. But there were some other companies that are taking it very seriously, including Deloitte. And I think the attempt to make Riyadh an international city is great. And I would say, yes, within a kind of Middle Eastern context, an Islamic con context, Neom feels more like a, there's a lot of universities there. There's a lot of engineering ideas there. I've now met about 10 different folks from the United States who have been brought in to work on different aspects of, of Neom, but it doesn't, it's not as a much of a, a city idea as it is a sort of a sustainability model. You know, one of the most interesting things actually to me about Neom is its location. So the place where Neom is being built is in the far, far upper Northwest quadrant 
of Saudi Arabia and actually along the Red Sea, but it's miles from Israel, miles mm. from Egypt and miles from Jordan. Yeah. And so it's very interesting that the location of Neom right on that little peninsula or that there's like a little promontory that juts out, that is where Neom will be. You know, it's like really at the, at the base of the Sinai Peninsula. And, mm. you know, I think geography matters a lot here. There's nothing there right now. It's, it's practically, you know, the edge of the empty quarter of Saudi mm. Arabia. But in and of itself, Neom is surrounded by sea on a promontory, and it's probably an hour drive from Israel. So yeah. um, that's very interesting. And it would probably be a 20-minute boat ride. I don't know quite how far, but, you know, maybe 30 minutes to Egypt. So as a as a kind of waylay point um, for some level of international cooperation, I think it's very interesting about mm -hmm. the site selection for Neom as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So what else yeah. happened at the conference? I know that you did a big session on digital and digital transformation. What were some of the findings from that? So somebody that I interviewed last year who I was really impressed with who came back onto this panel is a guy called Faraz Khalid who is the CEO of Noon. Do you know do you know Noon? I don't. Tell it's me about an, it. It's uh the Arab e-commerce unicorn and you can imagine they're the Amazon of the Middle East. So you can imagine what kind of year they've had. And he one of the most fascinating things that I think you'll appreciate is that before before lockdown, a hundred percent of their payments were in cash. Within days of lockdown, Saudi Arabia said we have to move to a hundred percent digital for safety health reasons. And within a couple of days, they moved to 100% digital payments. That's a huge deal. That's, that's a massive story because the U.S. They has came. not accomplished that. The U.S. has not accomplished that. No. Uh, I, I was just reading some e-commerce stats. And before the pandemic, the U.S. was at 15% of, you know, say, retail transactions were being done by e-commerce. China was at 30%. So China's e-commerce size, like it's actually, we think the US is a leader in e-commerce. It's actually from a per capita basis, way behind. And China was at 30% before the pandemic and is now approaching 40%. The US doubled its e-commerce from 15% to 30% since the pandemic. So mm -hmm. even with as much as we think we're buying online, the reality is, is that we're still fairly far, but you're saying the entire Saudi economy basically exploded into e-commerce almost overnight. How did they do that? They worked with small businesses to who were originally may have been doing a bit of business by WhatsApp. Actually, a lot of small businesses that whether they were providing television screens or workout equipment or diapers ended up using Noon's warehouses to hold their hold and then distribute their stuff. They had to get every single delivery driver, person that worked in the warehouse in every one of the cities that they worked in across the middle across the Middle East, but especially in Saudi Arabia, approved to be able to leave their house because when Saudi Arabia locked down, they didn't allow anyone out for anything. So it was a massive task but supported by the government, but it was huge. 
just on the digital payments front, what was interesting is that even when lockdown lifted and they could accept cash again, some people went back to cash, but the overall baseline is is still declining, meaning fewer and fewer people are paying for cash now in Saudi Arabia because once they figured out that actually it's much easier not to do so, they've stayed with the trend. So that was kind of interesting. What's happening beyond e-commerce? I know that there was some talk about everybody's favorite topic, Zoom, and the world of video conferencing. Well, did you get any insights into how that might adapt or evolve in 2021 for those of us who might be a little bit Zoom fatigued? <laughs> Definitely. So obviously we're in Emerald City, which is the pinnacle of anyone's experience, video conferencing experience. But here's some innovations that you might want to think about. Imagine if you could, if, if instead of a series of rectangles on the screen, we were little triangles that you could move around. And imagine that we were in a conference and I see that you're in the conference and I actually want to go sit next to you. So I move my, I move my triangle or whatever it is next to you. And actually things can happen once we're next to each other. We might be able to set up our own little kind of video conference next to each other. So that's kind of a fun idea. The other thing I did want to say about e-commerce, I don't know, do you want to say anything interesting about Emerald City and jump in there before I move back to e-commerce? You know, Emerald City continues to evolve slowly. It's a We're building a virtual city, so it's slow. We're launching about a new building every sort of two weeks. And, you know, it's hard. It's really hard to run a platform and have it scale. But it's pretty cool. It's come a long ways, and we're going to keep building, and we'll see where it goes this year. Um, spatial audio is our next big focus and it's all good. You know, one of the biggest problems we have with Emerald City is actually VPNs because in some places in the Middle East, it, the VPN systems don't allow Emerald City to, to load. So like in Dubai, that's often the case. And so that's one of our biggest problems, corporate firewalls and, and random places that just will not allow VPN. We don't know how to get around that yet. But anyway, right. that's kind of boring. <laughs> Let's go well, back but, again, but what you mentioned the you know building the city and and one of these aspects of e-commerce, guy called Jacob Mullins from Shasta Ventures was telling me about a company that he's invested in actually could be very good for Emerald City, just as it could be good for our next e-commerce buy. He's invested in a company that you're going to look for a new sofa, and you don't know you don't know what it's going to look like in your house. So actually what you can do is with this bit of kit, click on the sofa and with some pretty clever augmented reality, put the sofa in your house and then click on it again and change the pattern of the print. Click on it again, change the color, click on it again, you know, add a little corner unit. See, how, see if it actually will fit. So that could be something you could incorporate into Emerald City as well. And yeah. the other thing he did that he is invested in is, I mean, I don't know what your Zoom filter looks like, but I mean, I look like I'm about 20 years younger than I actually am. <laughs> means I don't have to, have to, I don't have to spend an enormous amount of time putting on makeup. But he's invested in one of the companies that's doing filters for, for example, Mac. But beyond just being able to put on fantastic eyeshadow and show up to your Zoom meeting with fake, you know, lipstick and all done up. I think there's, you know, there are 
going to be ways to, to improve our video conference experience. And the other thing that came out of that particular conference or that particular panel was a very cool woman called Lu Zhang, who has invested in the thing that I really want, which is contact lenses that are your screen. So they're unfortunately possible. I mean, that sounds like the Holy grail minority report. Yeah. So there are only hard contact lenses so far. They're not soft. And so far only the military is buying them. So again, a little bit tiny, bit scary, but, uh, they're coming. Wow. So uh, how does that affect your vision though? I wonder like over the longer term to, to be continued, but she said she had a statistic on how many people get hit by cars because they're on their phones walking into the street, either looking at their, looking at directions or looking at their I email. How many times I've almost been hit by a car yeah. walking into the street, looking at, I feel like yeah. that's the most dangerous thing in New York right now is me on a sidewalk with my phone. So, right. Well, not to mention the funny net, Bent neck syndrome is a thing. Like there's an entire population of people. You see it most often, I think, on engineers in the valley. But there's an entire generation of people who are growing up with an extra bone in their neck that is forming because their heads are bent all the time looking at their phones. So right. anything that can get us back looking up without bending our necks would actually be a very good thing. We're, we're actually mm. evolving a very weird neck situation um hmm. anyway. okay so what else happened on the digital front were there any other kind of signs of digital transformation that you can point to that, that or anything else that you found surprising so i had a really interesting conversation with a guy from trafigura have you heard of trafigura i hadn't so you don't uh, have no, to. i have it i barely heard of tim hortons okay <laughs> i think i do donuts CEO and executive chairman of Trafigura, Jeremy Weir, is a it's a commodities trading company, and he. So, do you remember that day that oil, the price of oil, went negative? You couldn't yes, pay. Which no one thought could happen, but the futures yeah. contracts were expiring. Yeah. So those are the guys that actually organized where that oil could go, because they could see where the demand was going to come from. It wasn't going to come. From that day, but they could see who was running out of oil, who was going to need it. And they organized for all that oil that was on ships heading for one place to go to their to offshore platforms, holding places and wait until the price went back up. And they but they then knew where where to send it. So that was a kind of it, that was a sort of side that I thought I, I did wonder at the time, where is if this oil is going somewhere and they don't want it anymore? Like, where does it go? And it turns out these guys were the ones who figured out what to do with it. There was also like a big situation where there was nowhere to store it because the refineries were all full. So the demand dropped so much that there was actually the reason that the oil price went negative is they were desperate to find people who would take the oil because there was so little demand that the, the, the just too much supply literally in the pipelines, nowhere to put it. Yeah. So apparently that this is where they went. They went to these offshore platforms and, and held it there. So anyway, you heard it here first. So, you know, I, Edie, while you've been in Saudi Arabia, I don't know if you've been following what's been going on in the United States, but mm -hmm. there's a very big development around the markets. And I wonder if this was something that was whispered about or talked about among the hallowed investment bankers of FII, but 
There's a situation that everyone calls GameStop that's happened this week in the markets. It's absolutely crazy, but it's now leaking into other companies. And so what happened was there was a subreddit called Wall Street Bets. And a bunch of people over quite a long period of time, say a year, started pumping up GameStop, um, which is a pretty average retailer of computer games in malls around America. But it's, you know, it's still a Fortune 500 company. It does over a billion in revenue each year, but it was heading towards bankruptcy. And the price of the stock had fallen to like $15 or $17, maybe even lower. And the crowd through Reddit decided that they wanted to save the company. And the Wall Street hedge funds had shorted this company as they do when they smell blood. And you know, it would have been a reliable short for a long time. And these people managed to, using Robinhood and E-Trade and other like, you know, trading apps, push the price of GameStop to over $320, then to $460. It peaked at over, I think, $468. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then trading was stopped by the big, the big guys, Citadel in particular, which owns part of Robinhood put the the screws on and got them to stop trading. And so there's a lot of questions right now about whether or not there is nefarious activity, et cetera, but those options expire today. And as of last look, the price of GameStop was still well over $200, which means that all those hedge funds that had bet against GameStop are about to have massive, massive, massive losses, like in to the order of billions. It says so much about like what I'm calling mob investing, but also like an attempt or like I call it not mob investing, but let's say protest investing. And this idea that the crowd and the internet itself as a almost functioning neurological system seems to be able to move so quickly now to take action when and where it decides, whether it's on the streets with Black Lives Matter, whether it's with Trump inside of Telegram organizing a storm on the Capitol. And what's really interesting is I feel that energy now moving towards markets. And so they're saying that Nokia, BlackBerry, even American Airlines could be the next targets of this idea where the crowd comes to save a company from Wall Street. And so as you were with all these Wall Street and financial investor guys, I'm wondering if this came up at all or if you've heard anything about it. It did come up, actually. It came up in the the opening session. And well, I'm going to let you guess, what do you think they said? It was the CEO of Goldman Sachs CEO of uh, BlackRock, Bridgewater Associates. What do you think they said? Well, if it's anything like what they've said publicly, I think they would have said they want to see an investigation or they want to see control over these platforms' ability to ride roughshod over the hedge funds. But I don't know. I mean, I'm dying to know. They They said that it was a fluke, short term would not become a major trend in the markets. So good for them. Good for them. But, you know, I hot on the head. Nice, 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 nice try, guys. Off you go. So that to me was fascinating because I thought, hmm, wonder what they would have thought about digital currency a couple years ago. You know? Exactly the same thing. Well, so this is this is where I'm going because it, what's happening with GameStop and these these different stocks right now feels like, crypto mentality actually beginning to infect the traditional markets. So what happened with these stocks happens every day in crypto land where Mm. for whatever reason, the crowd 
takes on to a particular asset and they'll drive the price up. Like Dogecoin, which is a ridiculous non-currency currency, a joke currency, sort of popularized in a way by Elon Musk um, for being useless. Like the point of Doge is to be useless. It went up something like 300% this week, you know, and then it will drop 300%. But it's very interesting to me that because of these like democratizing apps for young people's access to the markets, I think we're actually going to see a lot more of this kind of crowd-driven volatility. And it mm. does remind me of like what Wall Street said about Bitcoin three mm. years ago when, you know, when Jamie Dimon famously said that Bitcoin was a fraud and that it wouldn't amount to anything. And yeah. today, JP Morgan's target on Bitcoin for next year is $146,000 a coin. So, mm. you know, I do wonder if this is the beginning of something bigger. Um, yeah. It feels like that to me. Yeah, I, that's that was exactly my reaction. I thought, wow, you're really threatened by this, aren't you? <laughs> so that was a, a really interesting, really interesting moment. You know, in a weird way, the short market is actually super healthy for Wall Street because it prevents so much runaway enthusiasm because whenever there's a short on something, it's like constantly pushing down and bringing asset prices back to earth from a from some contrarian point of view. And I do think that they may be right in the sense that this does feel a little bit like a fluke as a thing, but, you know, because shorts actually do provide a useful role in the market, even though everybody kind of hates them for sort of betting contrarian and being doomsdayers, mm. but they're actually really valuable for keeping a stock price in check. But it's very interesting now that there's a, there's sort of a short on the short from the crowd. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. What else? What else? Did anything surprise you? I know it's like really having been to FII, it's almost like being in a bubble. And we haven't talked very much before we wrap up. I'd like to dive into where we should be this week, which is in Davos. Um, I know. I can't. Forum. I know. 13 years. You know, we've, we've done a decade of social media conversations there. You've done thousands of interviews Tell me if you found anything surprising and then let's go and have a little ski, a little virtual ski down a slope in Davos. <laughs> Talk about what we're missing as we wrap up our Davos Agenda week. You know, it's really interesting for us. We've been hosting the Davos Agenda each day in Clubhouse and I'm excited to hopefully have you in that conversation later today. But it's been really interesting about the things that have bubbled up. So there's a lot of talk about bubbleization versus globalization. The idea mm -hmm. that you know, things are becoming more segmented. There was mm. uh, talk about the underground and the fact that we have an underground really now, a, a cultural underground that hasn't existed in a generation um, because mm. people are doing things, partying, but they're not doing it in, in bars and clubs anymore. There was talk about the technology front and where things are going and how people are evolving post-pandemic. The fact that a lot of people have a kind of mild form of PTSD from being on, on mm. lockdown and mm. it's actually changing their long-term habits, education and like more change in education in the last year than we've seen in a generation. Anyway, what are your thoughts? So, uh, well, you know, a lot of what you said just really resonated with me on your point about the PTSD. Then I heard the other day, a specialist on grief on the radio, who said that for every one person that dies, nine people are grieving and they're physically, emotionally really affected by that. So if you look at the number of people 
in the UK, for example, who are grieving for those 100,000 people who have died, you know, you're, you're basically up to a million people grieving. And then if you look at the world, that's a, a phenomenal amount, right? That was something that I, I, you know, I'd never looked at it that way. What surprised me was that another point that you just mentioned there, I am worried, and I think a lot of people were worried about the fact that because supply chains did not work, because Brexit has happened, because really because COVID is going on longer than we thought it was going to, that the globalization, whatever it was, good or bad, is really winding back and that there will be a massive move to at least get things like pharmaceutical production in your own country. And if you look at what's happening now in Europe, the fact that Spain had to suspend its immunization program of the COVID vaccine, the fight that the EU is having with the UK because we're doing pretty well in the UK getting people vaccinated, but it looks like because the EU was second in line to sign on the line for one of the vaccines, they aren't getting any of that vaccine. So that was one thing that I hadn't really thought of, but those essentials, things like um, pharmaceutical, essential pharmaceutical production, um, companies are going to have to move that back to at least real regional hubs. So Australia was one of the ones that said, we're going to have to do it. Europe, I think you'll see that as well. On the more positive side, I heard some hardcore investors who last year, when I said I had a podcast about the sustainable development goals, literally they laughed in my face. The same hard-nosed investor came up to me today, uh, this week, and said, you know what? What I've realized is that I can't keep people at my company working unless they have something to believe in. And I tell you what, it's not investing in these banks that we're investing in. It turns out that what they really care about is doing relief work for people in Yemen. And so what I had as my personal project that I was giving money to and occasionally spoke about to people at work has now become a massive drive for the company and it's affecting you know the way we work but it's positively affecting the well-being because people have a reason to turn up and i thought that was a real positive side of of covid and i heard that from a couple of companies you always wonder if they're if it's more lip service but i mean god i i've thought about it right if i'm going to be sitting at home do i really want to be doing this what you know what impact am I really making by doing this? So I thought that was a, a positive side and that did surprise me. That is that is encouraging to hear. And you know, on a more positive note, I I love the Global Goals cast. And for those of you listening, if you don't already subscribe, check out the if you Global Goals on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> and it is fun to kind of be able to have a chat with you, Edie, because I, I love listening to that podcast. But one of the things that you do in the goals cast is always look at how you can turn what you're talking about into action. Mm. And, you know, I do think it's important to kind of focus on some of the 
good things that have happened. We're, we're really aware of the bad things and how much people are struggling. You know, I worry the most about the economic struggle that people experience because, you know, in the United States, the amount of, I don't know, there's just a kind of gloom that has set, settled over a lot of everything. Even here, where I am, the, the economy is essentially hobbled, if not shut down. And I do worry about how people are going to get through this. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccines are rolling out. And we do think that we'll be back by the end of the year at the latest into some form of normalcy. Mm. normal. But I also think that for me, it was post-Biden. When the Biden inauguration happened, I finally felt like I could let out a sigh of pent-up air and really begin to look at what does the new world look like. And I realized that For me, I had long been expecting to kind of snap back into my old life like a rubber band um, Mm. when it's all over. So I very much had this mentality of it will end and things will go back and I will live similar to the way that I did before. But now I'm starting to think that 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 rubber band has either broken or become so stretched that I don't think it will snap back to where it was before. I think that we, post-inauguration, I think we are in new territory Mm. as a country and as a as a planet and as a tribe even within hub culture we're going to uncharted territory Mm. we don't know what things are going to look like on the other end but it's not going to look like it did before like i think we will look back on the pandemic as being an even bigger turning point than we could have imagined Mm. and and i think that things will be wild and you and i will be laughing in davos in the social media center again all those yeah. things will happen, but I just feel like it's going to be different. I agree. And on the Biden note, from an investment perspective, I did ask people, okay, so what, is, what does Biden mean for, for investment? And they said, well, electrification of everything by copper. I said, uh, okay, well, how do we make that sustainable? And they said, well, you have to buy sustainable copper only. And you have to really look at where your copper is coming from, which I thought was interesting. And then the other thing was data centers. So this whole thing around the digitalization of everything and everything that we've talked about today is going to some those data centers have to go somewhere. And so you want to be thinking about where where those data centers are, and if you're going to put your money somewhere that's not copper, put them into a sustainable company that's building sustainable data centers. And that is part of the new Biden push, green push, but also making friends with the big internet companies again. So that's my lasting moment to you before we head off down the slopes, looking at the moon. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, coming at us from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, Hub Culture's long time, almost forever, serving executive editor, the first and only executive editor of Hub Culture. Thank you so much. I have loved this conversation. Thank you for taking us on a tour of Saudi and the future of Saudi. Thank you for just just having a moment to think about um, all the things that we do together. Um, I really do appreciate uh, you, Edie, and everything you've done for Hub Culture. Thanks for joining us today on The Chronicles. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. For the rest of our listeners, you can find more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. And join us on Clubhouse, where we're having a lot of fun convening virtual conversations. 
in real time. Just look for Hub Culture inside. Thanks so much. Thank <music> you.